the first sight of all of Russia. I run the terrible. Dasvidaniya, and welcome to History and Film. I'm Rich Simmons. That cold open there was found on the Epic Rap Battles of History YouTube channel, if you haven't checked them out before. So, I just realized that I referred to this episode kind of in the past tense on my Vlad Tepes episode that came out on Halloween. Just the consequence of working ahead and out of order. So, oops. When I mentioned Vlad having trouble with the boyars like Ivan the Terrible did, let's just Change that to Ivan. Here we'll have trouble with the boyars like Vlad Tepes did. As you may have guessed from the title of this episode today, we are discussing Russia's Ivan the Terrible. And right off the bat, let me explain that the name we know him by is really an out-of-date translation. It doesn't mean Ivan who sucked at being czar, but more like Ivan the force to be reckoned with, the formidable, he who makes our enemies tremble in fear. So yes, Terrible works, but as in, one who invokes terror. We were last in Russia in 1242 for the Battle on the Ice, where Alexander Nevsky led Russian forces to victory against the Germanic Teutonic Knights. Nevsky had his own issues with the boyars as well. Uh, a generation later, under Nevsky's son, the power center of Russia shifted from Kiev in modern Ukraine to Moscow, where it obviously remains to this day. The leaders during this time held the title Grand Prince of Moscow. I'm a little confused here about what exactly constitutes Russia. Russians date their history as a country back to the 9th century, but I think I'm too used to U.S. history where we have an exact date and know the exact territories and who was in charge, etc. I get the feeling it's just not that simple elsewhere. The Grand Prince of Moscow was the biggest power in the land and basically in charge of what we would consider Russia at the time, but when the 16-year-old Grand Prince Ivan IV was proclaimed Tsar of all Russia, many of the boyars, the Russian nobles, considered it a step too far. This is when our movie opens today, in 1547. I didn't realize from the film that he was meant to be just 16 years old at the time. We do see boyars grumbling in the crowd during Ivan's coronation as Tsar, with one friend saying to another, A Moscow Grand Prince is not entitled to be a Tsar. Let me also remind you that Tsar is the Russian form of Caesar, Caesar, and Ivan here is the first Tsar of Russia. So I guess the distinction must be that when he went from being the most powerful man in Russia as the Grand Prince of Moscow to actually saying he was officially in charge of Russia. The bulk of the movie is the boyar scheming behind Ivan's back to undermine him. Two weeks after his coronation, he marries Anastasia Romanov, and some assert that Ivan could only be so bold because he has the political support of her powerful family. Not to get ahead of ourselves, but if you recognize the name Romanov, that's because they were the czars right up until the Bolshevik Revolution of 1917. Anastasia's brother was an ancestor of all of them. A chief friend and rival to Ivan is Prince Kurbsky. He's simultaneously ambitious, yet loyal to the czar, for now, some boyars are whispering to him saying, hey, we don't want a czar, but if we're going to have one, maybe it should be you instead, Kurbsky. Kurbsky also seems to have wanted to marry Anastasia himself. Everyone is just really unsettled by this new czar. Ivan's servants are quietly concerned. The boyars are outraged due to their own self-interest. And even a mob of commoners swarms in during Ivan and Anastasia's wedding reception. But... All their worries over Ivan's ambition are put on hold when a messenger from Kazan arrives. 
The messenger says Kazan officially severs its ties of friendship to Moscow and that basically we're going to end you now. They offer a dagger to Ivan as a gift, suggesting that he kill himself with it. So the Russians put aside their issues with Ivan to go fight Kazan. I should say that Kazan was one of the states that splintered off during the fracturing of the Mongol Empire. It was very near to Moscow in current Russia and, as we next see in the film, ceased to exist after it was wiped out by Moscow and Ivan the Terrible. I'll also step in here to say that this was five years after his marriage, so the movie definitely starts covering a lot of time quickly without really informing the viewer or just changing the timeline altogether. Though we do see Ivan go from a clean-shaven young man to a fierce-looking man with a prominent pointed beard. During the return journey from the campaign against Kazan, Ivan falls gravely ill. The boyars say it's a sign from God for putting himself above them. They continue to apply Kurbsky to replace Ivan. Kurbsky has been a major general against the Kazan, and the boyars are telling him how unjust it is that Ivan gets all the credit. The dying Ivan demands the boyars swear allegiance to his infant son, who should succeed him as Tsar. He says it's for the good of Russia that inherited power is better. They stand there silently refusing, looking at Ivan with blank faces. He damns them as traitors to Russia before collapsing. The boyar's first choice to replace Ivan is actually now his cousin, basically a foolish young man named Vladimir who they will be easily able to control. Vladimir's mother is Ivan's aunt by marriage, and she's been against Ivan from the beginning. Kurbsky goes to Anastasia and tells her he'll protect her from the boyars, and seems to hint at wanting her by his side during the coming power shift. She's like, mm-hmm, well, Ivan isn't dead, you know. Hearing this, Kurbsky runs to publicly declare his support for Ivan's son, and Ivan comes into the room soon after and does reward his loyalty, such as it is. There's some more scheming, and a little later, Anastasia dies, poisoned by Ivan's aunt, and historically, it is believed she was poisoned to death. Ivan makes a big push to be the leader who represents the people and not the boyars. He leaves Moscow and waits for the common people to come and beg him to return to rule, which they do. The movie is actually in two parts, and this is where the first part ends. At first, I was just going to do this first half, as the second part was released 14 years after the first, but it really is two halves of the same movie, seemingly made at the same time. It appears Stalin banned the second half before it could be released, so it didn't come out until five years after his death. As far as what the film has gotten right and wrong so far, it's pretty accurate, I suppose, just because it only gives a superficial overview of the big events and then dramatizes the smaller moments, which we can't really know about between characters and their interpersonal relationships. There is mention of Queen Elizabeth of England, who is supposed to help get supplies to Moscow. It does appear that Ivan and Elizabeth wrote each other often. She was just three years younger than Ivan and became queen about five years after his near death from the illness we see in the movie. English statesmen also historically even visited Ivan's court in Moscow. And the movie almost seems to undersell Ivan's departure from Moscow at the end of the first half here, or I wasn't paying attention. In reality, in 1564, so 12 years after the destruction of Kazan, Ivan announced that he was abdicating his role as czar due to all the corruption among the boyars and the clergy. Moscow was a mess in his absence, and the boyars actually asked him to return. He said, sure, as long as my power is unquestionable going forward. Part 2 starts with Ivan's return to Moscow. We get a quick scene of Kurbsky with the King of Poland. He's basically defected away from Russia, as he did in real life, but we never see him again in the movie, which... 
it's kind of weird from a filmmaking standpoint. It's like, why even put him in this movie at all? And throughout this movie, it definitely seems to expect the viewer to be familiar with Russian history already, which I guess is fair. American movies do the same thing. We then see a flashback to Ivan as a boy, with the boyars fighting to have the boy agree with their agenda, basically treating him as a puppet, each saying what they want as if it were a command from the young Grand Prince. The flashback ends with Ivan standing up to them and stating his intention to be Tsar. Back in the present moment of the movie, Ivan learns his wife was poisoned. He had thought she just died of illness. He immediately, and of course correctly within the context of the movie, suspects his aunt. Ivan does have some boyar conspirators executed, but he wants his suspicions of his aunt kept secret. Meanwhile, she's arranging to have him assassinated. She wants to put her son, Vladimir, on the throne. Ivan, wanting to appear friendly, invites his cousin to dine with him. There's a huge party where the movie, which has been completely black and white up to this point, has a distinct red hue and even seems to be more full color at certain times. Vladimir gets drunk and thinks he and Ivan are best friends now. Ivan says it'll be fun for Vladimir to sit on the throne and wear the crown and hold his scepter, etc. The party ends and the film goes back to black and white and Vladimir is still walking around with Ivan's crown on. The assassin, hired by Ivan's aunt, Vladimir's mother, sneaks up and kills Vladimir, thanking him to be Ivan. When his aunt strolls in to gloat, her triumph quickly turns to grief when she realizes what has happened. It's her son now dead on the ground. It's actually kind of a cool ending to a movie that frankly, it was pretty boring up to this point. The truth here is a lot more elaborate. During Ivan's near-death experience, the boyars did back Vladimir over Ivan's infant son. When Ivan recovered, he and Vladimir signed a treaty wherein Vladimir would serve as regent in the event of Ivan's death until his son became of age, but Vladimir would then be more restricted in the meantime as to who he had contact with. And Vladimir's mother was also exiled to a monastery. Years later, Vladimir fell under suspicion again and was ultimately forced to take poison as punishment for high treason. His children were poisoned as well, and his wife and mother were drowned. So, yeah, I suppose there were times when Ivan could be terrible. In fact, the movie conveniently ends before we get to see Ivan at his worst. Shortly after the events in the film, Ivan set up a basically a secret police to remove any challenges to his power. The worst atrocity was in the city of Novgorod, where in 1570, Ivan's men slaughtered men, women, and children over rumors of treason in the city. A decade after that, there's a story of Ivan beating his pregnant daughter-in-law, possibly causing a miscarriage. And when his son confronted his father about the incident, he was killed when Ivan hit him in the head with a heavy staff. Ivan died in 1584 at the age of 53. He was succeeded by his son, Theodore, who in turn died without an heir, leading to a catastrophic period called the Time of Trouble, when not only was there a succession crisis, but a massive famine which killed one-third of the Russian population. By 1613, the Romanovs were on the Russian throne, which they held for 300 years until the end of the monarchy at the hands of the communists. A few other random notes. I don't I think I mentioned it, but if I calculated it correctly, Ivan was the seven times great-grandson of Alexander Nevsky. And something that seems like a really weird anachronism in the movie to me, one of the conniving boyars is wearing what look like flip-down, flip-up sunglasses. They're in the up position, and he doesn't have regular glasses that they go over. And they seem not only out of place for the 16th century, they seem out of place for 1944 when the movie was released. So I'm not sure what was going on with those. I want to briefly mention Orthodox Christianity, as we see plenty of Russian Orthodox clergy relics and ritual in this movie. 
We also saw Eastern Orthodox in the Vlad Tepes episode. Basically, nearly 500 years before Martin Luther separated from the Catholic Church, Christian churches in the East separated themselves from Rome. It was a slow process and tied to how we saw the Roman Empire itself split into it East and West. The Christianity of the two regions just evolved differently to the point that in 1054, there was an official schism with the Pope excommunicating the Patriarch of Constantinople and vice versa. The gaps in our timeline from film to film are getting smaller as we go here, so my usual elsewhere in the world at this time will be getting more and more precise than it's been, instead of just broad, you know, a decade here, a decade there. We we may also have more overlap. In 1547, the year Ivan was first crowned czar, that was the same year that Henry VIII died, and uh, King Francis I of France died that year as well. Two years before Ivan died, we began using the Gregorian calendar that we still use today. It was introduced by Pope Gregory XIII and gave us our modern system of leap years. And really cool point of trivia here, to correct the calendar and realign it with our position around the sun, October 4th, 1582 was followed by October 15th. We skipped ahead 10 days to make up for the lack of leap years in previous centuries. In 1560, about four years before Ivan's temporary abdication, Spanish conquistador Lope de Aguirre led a journey along the Amazon River in search of the legendary El Dorado. And in just our second trip to the Americas, that's where we're headed next week with Werner Herzog's 1972 Aguirre, The Wrath of God. <laughs> 